Welcome to Cinematicon Ex Mortis, the horror movie discussion podcast hosted by Kenny and Heather. And uh, today we are looking at a classic universal monster movie, The Mummy. Uh, So we're going back to that well. So some basic facts. The Mummy was released in 1932. It was directed by Carl Freund who had been the cinematographer for such classic German films of the silent era as The Golem from 1920 and Metropolis. And then after leaving Germany for Hollywood, he had worked under Todd Browning as the cinematographer for 1931's Dracula. The film stars Boris Karloff, Zita Johan, David Manners, and Edward Van Sloan, and features a musical score by James Dietrich. The screenplay was written by John L. Balderston, who had previously adapted stage play versions of Dracula and Frankenstein for the American theater. It was his adaptations that were then used as the basis for Universal's film versions in the previous year. Balderston's screenplay, this time, adapted not a classic novel, but a story about the 18th century magician and occultist Cagliostro, that was written for Universal by Nina Wilcox Putnam and Richard Scheer. So you want to do the plot summary? A team of British archaeologists in Cairo, Egypt, led by Sir Joseph Wemple, played by Arthur Byron, discover an ancient mummy called Imhotep buried with the magical scroll of Thoth. Even though it clearly says not to do so on the inscription, and Wemple's friend Dr. Muller, played by Edward Van Sloan, warns him not to. One of the archaeologists recites the scroll aloud, and Imhotep, played by Boris Karloff, is resurrected. Ten years go by, and Imhotep is now disguising himself as a modern-day Egyptian and calling himself Ardith Bay. He goes to visit Sir Joseph Wemple's son Frank, played by David Manners, and Professor Pearson, played by Leonard Moody, and tips them off on where to dig for the ancient Egyptian princess Ankh. Tsunamen, who happened to be his lover back when he was alive. Uh, 3,700 years ago, Ankh Tsunamen had died, and Imhotep had attempted to resurrect her, a forbidden act that had resulted in him being condemned to death. The dig is successful, and Ankh Tsunamen's sarcophagus is exhumed. Imhotep is now on a mission to finish what he started all those years ago. Upon encountering Helen Grosvenor, played by Zita Johan, a half-Egyptian woman who bears a striking resemblance to his long-lost love, Imhotep is convinced that she is the reincarnation of Aksunamen. He intends to kill her, mummify her, resurrect her once more, and finally be with her for eternity. Helen, joined with the spirit of the long-dead princess, prays to Isis for aid, and the goddess responds. The scroll of Thoth is destroyed, Imhotep turns to dust, and Frank calls Helen, who he had fallen in love with, back to him and to her true consciousness. All right, very nice. So, um, this was your choice, so presumably you are a fan of this motion picture. I've never seen it before. Oh, wow. You knew this already. You're lying. You're doing a bit. I thought you had seen all of the... Universal monster movies. No, Kenny. Are there any other ones you haven't seen? I haven't seen any of the sequels to this one. I I know there's, I think, at least one sequel to this that you like. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah. There's a lot of sequels that are pretty obscure, but like, have you not seen? Are there any of the other like major ones that you haven't seen? Like, have you seen? Uh, them? yeah, I haven't seen the Wolfman hmm. before. Okay, well, we'll have to get around to that sometime. Okay. Well, okay. So, what did you think of it then? I really liked it. I think this might be my favorite one after Black Lagoon. Hmm. Well, no, that's not true. I like Dracula after Black Lagoon and then this one. Yeah, my favorite ones are definitely the James Whale ones, especially mm-hmm. Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man. Um, yeah, those ones. But yeah, I don't know. I've seen this one a bunch and I think I liked it better this time than I ever have. Interesting. It's really grown on me. Why do you think you like it more now? I don't know. Something about it just didn't grab me before. Mm-hmm. Um, and this time I just really felt like, I don't know. I like how how tight and precise it feels as far as the storytelling it's just really well put together i it really creeped me out sometimes yeah yeah so i guess we could start by just talking about the opening scene because to me the opening scene is the scariest one really yeah you don't agree no interesting but why do you think it's so scary well i would i would say that the mummy is probably not like one of the best of the universal classic monsters, but I think it's opening mm-hmm. scene might be the best scene in any of those films. Holy shit. Why? It is just, it's so well constructed. It sets up uh, the themes of the film and the, the conflict and our antagonist, the, the mummy. And mm-hmm. it's so effectively creepy. And then, like terrifying when uh that dude uh ralph it's always ralph ralph norton he's the assistant guy who insists on reading the scroll but i just i love that i guess it's the last part of the scene right where he reads the scroll that i really love um where the two other guys are talking outside and He's left alone with this Pandora's box, right? Or the um, Bluebeard's closet, right? It's this thing he's not supposed to open, but he, mm-hmm. and we see him fight with himself and he looks over at it. He starts examining the different things and he's like so fascinated. And then, and then he kind of goes like, okay, you know, I'll wait. And he, he goes back to what he's doing. And then you kind of see like his eye just kind of looks over there back at it and he can't help himself. Um, so uh, I love that. It's, it's like a silent film, right? Cause there's, it's, it's all done visually and we see him be tempted and then he takes out the, the scroll and reads it we get the the mummy's eyes slowly opening i guess i just love how like how quiet and restrained everything is there's no there's no musical accompaniment to any of this and there's a lot that's done through suggestion right um we just 
see him look over, but we don't see what he sees when the mummy takes the scroll. We only cut back. We see him sort of uh, back away and he begins, he's completely gone insane from what he's just seen and he starts maniacally laughing and we cut back to just seeing the the bandages trailing out the door. We don't actually see Imhotep you know, moving around at all in that scene. He moves his hand a tiny little bit when he starts to come back mm-hmm. to life. Um, and I just, I love that that restraint. And to me, it's so effective. It's so much better than actually seeing him to just imagine. Yeah. I mean, I agree about the thing about like not seeing, like we've, we've talked a lot on this podcast about like how much scarier it is when you don't really get a good, picture of what it is like the thing that's scary like um there's some when there's some mystery involved it's way scarier so there's that i just found the the hysterical laughter just like uncomfortable like i was just like "Mm." i guess i just didn't like the performance of it Mm. where it felt over the top to me and so therefore it was just like like I didn't buy it as a driven mad performance like it just felt it felt awkward and it felt out of place to me it it kind of ruined the scene for me yeah I guess I could see that like it's hard to accept that your mind could just completely snap in an instant like that it was so quick it was way too quick for me like if there had been a little bit more involved there before he just immediately was insane i think maybe it wouldn't have been so eh, to me but it just i was just like oh it didn't have the effect on me that it did for you so what was the scene that you're referring to when you said there were some really scary parts so the scene where imhotep is in like the living room with Helen and and Frank and and everybody and he and Helen are just they just have their eyes locked on to each other and he's like still like she's in her trance right mm-hmm. he's got her in this trance and everyone else in the room they're all just talking and Imhotep is talking to everybody else but he's still not dropping his gaze from hers and it just is so unsettling it's not like I'm sitting there like terrified but it was so unsettling and and is so uncomfortable that it's it was it's creepy it's mm. like so creepy that it's scary i was just like oh please stop doing that like that that part was really unsettling to me and really ugh, got under my skin you know yeah there's a sh- there's a close up shot of karloff's face where his eyes like glow that they use several times in the film yeah i know That's what you're talking about a pretty about. creepy shot too mhm it's very like Lugosi esque. Yes. They both have this face that just they can do this thing with their face that's just like, oh ugh, God. Yeah, he's like staring right into your soul. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess that leads into the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is every time I see this movie I notice more things that are similar to Dracula. Okay. Uh, Balderson, like I mentioned earlier, was actually the person who 
wrote the well he sort of wrote the play version of dracula that made lugosi a star and then lugosi was able to parlay that into playing the role when it was moved to film in 1931 um it was actually a play that had been a british stage adaptation and then balderson adapted that for the american stage i don't know what all you have to do in order to do that like what was involved just like taking out the letter u and the word color or like what like what you know <laughs> is it that hard to just show a, a british play in, in america i don't know but mm-hmm. um anyway he had worked on essentially uh dra- what became dracula and i feel like the mummy the more i watch it i feel like dracula is like a rough draft of the mummy like he just took the same mm-hmm. elements and he cut the fat, he put things into a more sensible relationship to each other, and he fixed a lot of the problems that Dracula has. And he just made what, in terms of the writing, is just a better version of the same story, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, did you notice any similarities between those two films? Absolutely. I mean, like, the whole trance state, that's very Dracula. The face he's making is very Dracula. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of parallels. Just the whole fact that he's, like, an undead creature. Right, yeah, that that's a big one. Who's trying sure. to, like, prey on this young woman. Mm-hmm. And he can kind and of... The, like, uh, yeah, he's, like, calling to her. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. a similar type situation going on yeah he has this hypnotic power over people that he can put them under his spell mm-hmm. and um he's also like he's a monster but he looks like a person and he can kind of infiltrate human society and just pretend to be like this kind of mysterious foreigner right but then there's the occultist doctor who's played in both films by Edward Van Sloan. He's Van Helsing mm. in Dracula and here he's Dr. Muller. It's essentially the same character. He just he already knows about this monster yeah. and yeah. He, so he's able to confront him and they have a confrontation in this film that's like the exact same thing as the confrontation between Van Helsing and Dracula in Dracula. Um where they have kind of a standoff and like a battle of wills where they're each trying to like uh out willpower the other one and it ends up as kind of a draw and Imhotep slash Dracula sort of retreats. There's the same kind of thing where Van Helsing, he knows about like the ways to keep Dracula away, like the the Wolfsbane and the crucifix. There are these charmed items that you can use to repel him. And he, but other people don't listen to him, and so he gives them the charm to repel Dracula, but they just get rid of it. Um, with uh, the nurse taking away the wolfsbane from uh, Lucy's, is it Lucy or Mina? Uh, I always get those two mixed up too. I think Lucy. Ooh. Don't ask me. I think in the film it's Mina's bedroom that he's trying to protect mina because lucy dies mm-hmm. like really quickly in the okay yes that's one. right that's right so 
so there's that whole thing and that's like the same thing as with this film with the um little statuette of isis which even resembles a little crucifix necklace and he gives that to uh the david manners character who's another actor who's playing essentially the same character in both films he's like the the romantic lead the male romantic lead mm-hmm. who's in love with the woman who is being preyed on by the undead evil and uh but he doesn't really understand the significance of it and um he ultimately takes it off of his neck and that allows him to be attacked by imhotep yep um it's kind of white zombie-esque too hmm yeah i feel like bella lugosi was must Mm -hmm. have been an influence on boris karloff's performance i've never seen anyone say that like I, I haven't seen like Karloff fess up to that at any point that he was taking notes on, based on Lugosi's mm-hmm. performance as Dracula. But I feel like it's a very similar approach to the character. Um, just like the way that he talks it has a kind of musicality to it that's similar too. Oh yeah, definitely. So I guess what I would say though is there are some differences. And if you look at the differences, they're kind of all to the better as far as making it like a well-structured story. So we talked about with Dracula how it's kind of weird that we have um, a... There are, there are a bunch of things that are strange about the plot structure of Dracula. So like the first like third of the film, we have Renfield as the hero, but then he gets turned evil. And then we kind of just have no hero, no clear protagonist for the rest of the film. Right. Um. So it kind of feels like the first third is like its own little movie and then the rest of it feels a little un- unconnected. So here they fixed that. We have our Renfield character in the uh, guy whose name I've forgotten again, uh, Norton, who reads the scroll. And just like Renfield, he ends up laughing maniacally. That's the conclusion of that mm. introduction of the villain mm-hmm. in both films. Um, mm-hmm. And... But here it takes like all of five minutes instead of taking the first third of the film. And we really quickly introduce Imhotep. And I would say Imhotep is the protagonist of this film. He's like an anti-hero, which which is another problem with Dracula where there are just very fleeting moments where Dracula is kind of sympathetic. Like when he says, um, oh, how wonderful a thing to be able to die. Um, so it's like we get a sense that maybe his his existence is miserable. He wishes he could end it, but he can't. Um, but for the most part, he's just a villainous, monstrous person who wants to harm the other characters. Imhotep is, to my mind, he's a lot more sympathetic because he is on this quest to restore his beloved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of goes to hell in the end, though. Cause yeah. she's even she rejects him. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, the ending is a little confusing to me. Maybe the ending you, is problematic. Can you explain to me exactly what's going on? Like, he's got her soul into yeah. <laughs> Zeta Johan's body. Yeah, his plan doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so it seems like, okay, you've done it. Like, 
Hooray. Yeah, I don't... I'm not sure what the hell he want. Like, what, what more do you want? Like, you got her back in a hot body. And it's not What's like she wants problem? to put her soul back into her body, because he burns her body. Right? He burns the I guess the mummy. there's just something that we... They expect us to just know that we don't. Like, about the process of how they're supposed to be together forever. Like, she has to be mummified. It, it must be part of the... Um, the... the the ritual right mm. like it has to be performed maybe he wants them to be immortal or something and I think this that must has be to it. occur he doesn't want to go through this again and again so there must be some kind of ritual that he has to perform in order for them to be together forever yeah he wants her to be immortal in the sense that he is right okay but you'd think he could just like, that's not an urgent thing, because she's not about to die. Yeah, he's jumping the gun a little bit. But maybe, I don't know, maybe that speaks to his... I guess it's appropriate, because his, like, character flaw is obviously an inability to reckon with death and loss, right? Like, he's someone who refuses to just accept that he's lost his love and um he instead he goes sort of beyond the pale in his attempts to revive her so i guess it would make sense that his downfall is that he once he gets her back he still is you know not satisfied unless he can completely remove the possibility of death mhm mm I don't know what that would look like, but I feel like if he mummified her, you are back to square one. But I mean, what do I know? I'm not, I'm not an expert on ancient Egyptian resurrection rituals, so. Yeah. So did you find Imhotep to be a sort of sympathetic character? I mean, I did until, cause like he, he means well it's like he just wants to have his girlfriend back you know what i mean and like of course you're sympathetic because it's like 3700 years of just like loving this woman and he tried to resurrect her when she first died like he he's in love with this woman right and that makes you sympathetic to him but he takes it too far so then you're kind of not sympathetic to him anymore and you're like oh dude like we were with you until this point, you you kind of need to calm down a little bit, you know? Yeah. He's obsessive, and it's maybe almost a little bit of a power-hungry thing, kind mm -hmm. of. Like, it's more about the process and the ritual and, like, look what I can accomplish more so than it is about his love for her. Yeah, I mean, he's a very domineering character i mean that's the only side we see of him is this person who's able to just walk into a room and hypnotize people and make them do his bidding yeah and he doesn't seem to care about anyone else's feelings or you know it, it's not a very good sign i don't think the relationship really would have worked out anyway hmm. there was gonna be more to you mentioned like 
thousands of years of this mm -hmm. relationship. But of course, in the film, as we see it, it's just they die. And then it's been thousands of years of them both being dead. And then he's revived. Mm -hmm. But originally, there was going to be like a whole series of reincarnations where they their love played out tragically in ancient Rome and in medieval times and in the Wild West. I don't know what, what, what all the uh, time periods were, but they actually, w that was in the script and they shot it. And there are, there are photos that are really cool uh, where you can see oh, wow. Karloff and Zita Johan in, you know, dressed up as ancient Romans and in, in a set that looks like ancient Rome and stuff like that. They shot all this bit and it was, it was like a montage that was supposed to go in the part where Imhotep shows um, I keep calling, using the actress's name. What's the character's name? Helen. Uh, Helen. Yeah. Um, they show he shows Helen his like crystal ball that has that that um, plays the footage of their ancient love affair and everything. It was going to then show all of this other stuff, but and they shot it, but then they they ended up deciding to cut it out because they felt like. You know, the film's already over an hour long. It's kind of getting a, a little bloated. So, uh, I wish they'd kept that. Yeah, I think it it might have been really cool. It also would have helped make sense to like like the re like why he sees her and is like, "Oh, this is this is her." You know, it it helps to understand what the process looks like a little bit. Like she does get reincarnated a lot. Like, this is just what happens. It's not like he just picked this random woman and was like, hey, you look kind of like her. It's like, no, that that is how this works. Yeah. I'm, I'm not clear on how he was, like, reincarnated in those different times at the same time he was also, like, imprisoned in his mummy form. Uh, you know, like, he hadn't I mean, been reanimated yet. He was, like a priest right like he this is his shtick is like these rituals and this knowledge of, of all this stuff so maybe he's just like this mystical being kind of maybe i don't know but i do i i will say that i really find it admirable that they were willing to junk that footage that they clearly had spent a lot of money making you know the, the costumes and the sets and everything for a purely story reason of like the story works better without it it's it's making this uh vision sequence drag on too long and there's a kind of ruthlessness to the way this film was edited that i really enjoy where it doesn't feel like there's any fat to the story um, it connects mm -hmm. to that thing i was saying earlier about how like they they don't show after you know having Karloff sit in makeup for eight hours a day all you get is him just kind of opening his eyes a little bit and moving his hand that's all you actually see of that that brilliant you know makeup and costuming of, of him as the full you know bandaged mummy after the whole rest of the film he's dressed like a person he's not in his bandages but they knew what they needed mm -hmm. to tell the story and they didn't put in mm -hmm. more than that Mm -hmm. so yeah other things i think are like improvements to dracula 
they've come they've sort of gotten rid of Lucy. Uh, there's just one woman who Imhotep is after. Uh, mm-hmm. So that seems like a clear win to me. Like that whole, th- that character is already Drac. The film version of Dracula is really condensing a lot of the characters from the novel and sort of like leaving out key people or, or drastically reducing their roles. But you see that continue even more here where it's really just boiled down to like the key people that you can't do without. Um, right that's better i like also the change where helen has a lot more agency in the resolution of the story than mina does in dracula in dracula it's like i think we probably talked about this in our review of it but it feels like she is the character who has the internal conflict where she's trying to fight against turning into a vampire and that mm-hmm. sort of makes her the most interesting figure in the film, other than, I guess, Dracula himself, maybe. Um, and so it seems like she should be the protagonist, but she just doesn't have any agency. Like, she struggles against being a vampire, but nothing comes of that. And then Van Helsing is just like, okay, I found Carfax Abbey. Let's go stake Dracula. And they just do. They just go and put stakes through his heart, and that's the end of the, the movie. Here, it's... Her, her internal struggle, the outcome of that is what determines the outcome of the film, and that's what leads to the happy ending. Yeah. So I think that's better. Oh, yeah. Another difference between this and Dracula is that this film ha- actually has a musical score. Um, although another similarity is that they both have the theme from Swan Lake playing over the opening titles. Uh, but for the whole rest of Dracula, there's no score. Whereas here we do get certain scenes with a musical score. Did you feel like that was uh, an improvement or would it have played better without musical accompaniment? I like the music a lot. Me too. Cool. I feel like this was a good, I guess, middle ground. Mm -hmm. I watched, I have seen Dracula... So Philip Glass, the famous composer, who's kind of like a minimalist composer, composed a score for Dracula some, you know, 50 years later or whatever. And I have seen Dracula with the Glass score, and I preferred it without the score. It felt like too much, like every scene was being sort of overpowered by the music. But at the same time... I, f- I do feel like there are moments where Dracula, the absence of a score is felt and you need a little bit of something in there, you know, like it's just too quiet and becomes dull. And I feel like this film kind of is smart about where it puts the score. Like in that opening scene, there's no music. So the silence in the room as the mummy is slowly reanimating is frightening like we are listening carefully to hear any signs of breathing or you know anything that could happen and i i really don't think that would be improved with uh you know tension building music but then there are other scenes where i feel like it does do a good job um in particular like when imhotep is just kind of sitting there and he's like uh hypnotizing helen or like communicating telepathically with her without the score it would just be him like sitting in his room alone looking intensely you know 
Mm-hmm. It helps to sort of convey what is going on and what we're supposed to feel about it in scenes where it's not as obvious. I guess I I guess a similar scene in Dracula where I feel like it would be really useful is the confrontation between uh, Van Helsing and Dracula, where they're like trying to Dracula's trying to mind control him and they're having their sort of stare down that scene. It, it definitely goes into like silliness territory for me personally. Like when I watch that, it feels like, I don't know, kids on the playground, you know, pretend, pretend, uh, force attacking each other as Jedi and Sith or something. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. the, the lack of the music somehow, doesn't let me fully buy into the fact that there's some kind of magical thing going on there. I just see it as the two actors staring at each other. There are some parts where it's a little odd. Like it's, it feels a little, um, like they hadn't totally figured out how to work a synchronized score into a film like this. Cause sometimes like the score will still be going and then it will cut to another scene and it'll just suddenly cut off. And there's just goes from in the middle of a note. It'll just cut to nothing. Oops. So, yeah, that could have been done a little better, but overall, I think it's good. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the controversial things about this film and mummy movies in general is like their attitude towards Egypt and the East more generally, sort of Middle Eastern culture. Um, people have argued that this film is colonialist. Do you think that that's a fair criticism? Yeah, totally. Why would you say this is a colonialist film? Because they're over there, like, digging up shit that they should just leave alone. And reading curses and shit. Like, it, they've got the Egyptian people as just these, like, workers in the background. Like, it's just, it's, yeah, it's like, oh, look at this museum of all this stuff we got. Like, it's not your stuff. Like, it just doesn't, it's not very, it's not nice. Mm. Yeah, so the the characters are certainly engaged in what you could call a sort of colonialist project. I guess that's debated among the characters themselves, though, right? Like, in the first scene, part of what's interesting about that scene for me is the debate that Wemple has with uh with uh um, Ralph Norton where they're talking about how the sensational finds like the mummy are actually less important than the like bits of pottery and stuff because or that's Wemple's position because like the real purpose of archaeology is just to understand the past and it's not about loot it's not about the financial rewards and the fame that come from taking the stuff from these uh, uh, faraway places and bringing it to places like the British Museum. So that's like the idealistic thing. But of course, we know that they did take all of this stuff and put it in the British Museum. Um, but in the film, the characters don't do that. They've already sort of made an agreement. And I guess it's part of the agreement that they make with Imhotep, uh, AKA Ardeth Bay, when he tells them where they can find the uh, Anxanamen tomb, Mm -hmm. is they agree not to take anything out of the country. And so the museum that we see in the film is in Cairo. 
and That's we get good. we get Frank sort of grousing about this. He's like, well, I don't know why we have to leave everything here. And Wemple again sort of says, you're missing the point of archaeology. It's not about loot. It's not about taking things away. It's just about understanding. Yeah, that's good. That's a point in their corner. So, yeah, I don't know. I think the film kind of stages part of the debate, but it's, yeah, it's very focused on the Western characters. It's a complicated thing, right? Because Imhotep and Oxenamen they're ancient Egyptians, and there's a kind of distinction between them and the current inhabitants of Egypt, who are people who are of a different ethnicity and religion and language and everything. And I don't know, I saw somewhere online somebody saying, like, the film kind of is uh, racist against the modern Egyptians because Helen, when she's at that party where we is it where you i think it's where we first meet her she's looking mm-hmm. out over the pyramids and she says oh it's so beautiful ancient egypt and it's so shitty that we have to be in modern egypt um and so that was kind of interpreted as like the ancient egyptians were great but the modern egyptian people the the arabic speaking muslim people in modern egypt are kind of like debased i see but i don't know um, she's when she's saying that and she's looking around her, she's not looking around at the modern Egyptians. She's looking around at like this sophisticated cocktail party kind of atmosphere with other Westerners. So to me, that kind of undermines that interpretation. It, yeah, I, I think it's kind of a reach. Yeah, I kind of see that as the the film positioning her as wishing to be back in ancient Egypt as opposed to in the modern Western world because she has these two halves to her personality, the Egyptian and the Western. It's like planting seeds that she's got some sort of connection to ancient Egypt. I think it's that's all it is. I guess this kind of connects to the other thing, the other question that I have, which is like, does this film actually end up sort of reinforcing European culture, uh, Christianity, things like that, that we normally see sort of reinstated as norms at the end of these classic horror movies. Because at the end, it seems like the Egyptian gods are real. Like mm-hmm. Isis answers Helen's prayer and uh, does magic shit. Mm-hmm. And um that's what saves the day as opposed to like in dracula where it's the power of the crucifix and and presumably faith in in christ that defeats the monster here it's faith in a pagan god that sort of turns out to really exist so i mean it it, in a way it seems like the ancient egyptian culture that you might see as being evil because it's represented by imhotep seems like it wins in the end like it ends up being presented as like the true religion i think that's one of the things i liked about it the most okay i guess i'll play devil's advocate then or like jesus's advocate um so okay but the thing that happens at the end the act of isis that gives us the happy ending 
is a kind of self-negating act for Egyptian culture and religion because it's allowing Helen to return to her European boyfriend and leave behind the Egyptian side of herself. And so we reimpose the sort of segregation between these two cultures and we put away the ancient evil of Imhotep at the end. Wow, that's pretty deep. So what would you say to that? Well, I think that Anksunaman wanted to just go back to being dead, kind of. Mm. Um, it's like Isis kind of restored what is supposed to be, you know? Yeah, I guess it's true that Imhotep is, he's hardly a um, spokesperson for the ancient religion as it was supposed to be practiced, right? He's a heretic. He who, broke the rules. Yeah. So, die. <laughs> yeah. But I, I guess it's just a, something that the film never addresses that like, okay but now no one is worshiping isis right like now this religion is has died and she doesn't need people to worship her to I be awesome not. she knows she's comfortable <laughs> with her powers and her influence she's fine with it she doesn't have a huge ego yeah she doesn't have to prove anything to anybody what other thoughts did you have about this one I thought the ending could have done a little bit better with like like the very last scene is very abrupt mm -hmm. he's like trying to call Helen back to you know the land of the living and he's like Helen Helen and it's like the end and I was like oh well guess we're done like there was it was so abrupt like she didn't even fully open her eyes yet and it was over so yeah, I think of all of these films, maybe Frankenstein is like the only one that has kind of a denouement where there's that scene where they're like, a son to the house of Frankenstein, and they're like all happy. Yeah, I mean, I didn't need anything like that extreme, but they it needed a better button on it. Yeah, most of these films, it just seems like at the end... They're just like, okay, okay, it's over, it's over, it's over. Like, they're just rushing to end the film yeah, they at the just, very moment that they the just monster's destroyed. Didn't care. It's like, hey, uh, what? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I would defend that decision. Just in that, I mean, if they could have thought of something interesting to have happen after that point in the story, like maybe... Um, we get a final scene with Helen alone where she, we, we learned that she hasn't totally lost the Anxanaman side of her personality, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, something that would be unexpected after that point. But given that they were just gonna kind of have them reconcile and get married and, uh, the, story about Imhotep gets sort of hushed up and they go on with their lives and they have children. It's like, I can, I can just imagine that. I don't, I don't need to see it. Well, I think they could have ended it with like a really good quote or something like King Kong. Yeah. Like true. that would be better. 
Like it doesn't, I don't need an extra scene. I just need like something. I need a grand finale. I need to know. I, I just think it deserved a better send off. That's a good point. Another thing that's cool about this one is it's uh, one of the pre-code films. So before 1934, when the production code went in and they started censoring all these movies. And for a while, it basically meant they couldn't make any horror movies. Um, but the pre-code movies sometimes have nudity in them. They, some, they have all kinds of things that you just couldn't have in any Hollywood film between 1934 and like 1960. And this one, I, I think definitely shows signs of that. Like there's some stuff in this that is like pretty extreme for the time period um, that they wouldn't have been able to get away with later. Like in the um, flashback, where we see the the love affair of Imhotep and Oxenamen. Um I mean, she's dressed pretty scantily, for one thing. Um, but for another, we get the the burial of Imhotep, and then the the people who buried him get speared. Oh yeah, that was pretty violent. Yeah, and we actually see the 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 grave diggers get impaled with the spears, and it's like all gory mm. and stuff, and it's like whoa, sweet, and um, and then he says that the the soldiers who killed them were then killed, which uh-huh. then uh, makes me think like, well, then weren't the people who killed those soldiers killed, and then the people, and so eventually yeah. everyone in Egypt had to die. I had the same thought. I'm like, okay, who <laughs> killed the soldiers? <laughs> what those are the soldiers yeah i was i had a question mark there but anyway that's like a you know a pretty violent thing for 1932 and then uh also at the end when imhotep dies we like actually get a pretty cool um transformation effect sort of thing where we see his face go back to being the face of the corpse Mm -hmm. and then we see his uh, that he's crumbled to pretty much dust and we can see like the skull just in the, you know, uh, clothes on the ground and stuff. So that's like, that's pretty gnarly too. Like if you compare that to like Dracula in Dracula, we don't see shit when they stake him. You just like hear from off screen, uh, the sound of the hammer and Dracula yell and that's it. Right. So, I don't know. That's that's cool to me. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, next time, what movie are we watching? Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow from 1999 with uh, Johnny Depp. I assume it has Johnny Depp since it's... Yes, it has Johnny Depp. It's got Helena Bonham Carter. No. No? Okay, it's been no. a while since I've seen this one. She doesn't play like the witch or anything? No. Okay, well, um, we'll look forward to rediscovering that one. Mm-hmm. Is that the end? I guess so. Okay, bye. Bye.